In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our text is the Gospel reading which you've heard. You may be seated. I've titled this year's Midweek Lenten series, Behold Your King. These are the words of Pontius Pilate. He uttered these words as a beaten and bloodied Jesus stood before the crowds, the crowds that shouted for him to be crucified. This Lenten season, we will heed those immortal words. As one theologian put it, we will linger at the cross. Do not look away. Here we behold the life-giving cross on which was hung the salvation of the world. For there we see the kind of king that our Lord is. He is a king who has been mocked, who has been marked for death, who has been crucified. This is the kind of king that we have. One of the things that often strikes me when I read the Gospel of St. Matthew is the beautiful literary structure that the Holy Spirit inspired St. Matthew to use. He uses a literary device known as foreshadowing. You probably remember this when your teacher in middle school or high school made you read a Shakespeare play or two. But Matthew uses this in spades in his gospel. So let's just take a real quick tour of Matthew. First, Matthew begins with everyone's favorite genre of literature in the Bible, and that is a genealogy. The genealogy starts off by linking Jesus to two historical figures from the Old Testament, Abraham and also David. These two characters are linked, of course, by biology, but I think Matthew's specifically calling these two guys out first is a significant one. One of the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 17 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. This promise is most immediately fulfilled in the first king that comes from this line, and that is none other than David. David makes this point already in the genealogy of Jesus. The promise God made to Davis, David focuses that Abrahamic promise even more. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. That kingly promise clearly looks over the head of Abraham, looks over the head of David, looks over even David's son Solomon, because his throne is established forever. This promise looks to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Matthew then moves into the second set of names in his genealogy, and that is all of the kings that are descended from David that sat on the throne in Jerusalem. Next, we go to the Christmas story. A little bit later in chapter 1, 
where Matthew quotes the familiar Emmanuel passage. This comes from a familiar interaction between the prophet Isaiah and one of David's uh, one of David's descendants, one of Jesus' ancestors, King Ahaz. So again, some kingly connotation at work. The next scene in Matthew chapter 2 is an interaction between the Magi, the three wise men, and King Herod in Jerusalem. They hail Jesus as the one who has been born the king of the Jews, and the wise men saw his star. This may be an obscure reference in the Old Testament to Numbers chapter 24, where the Lord speaks a blessing of the Israelites as they wander through the wilderness. He says to them, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Well, who carries a scepter? Of course, a king does. So I'm guessing you've probably figured out by now where we're going with this little tour. So I'm not going to talk about how Jesus was tempted with the false promise of a kingdom by Satan in Matthew 4, or how Jesus' first sermon was about the coming of the kingdom of God, or how so many of Jesus' parables talked about heaven as the kingdom of God. So let's skip to the end of Matthew's gospel. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the crowds shouted of him, Hosanna to the son of David. There he is again. St. Matthew points out that this also fulfills Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah, who says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The kingly imagery in Matthew's gospel only gets thicker as the passion of Jesus begins in earnest. Pilate asked Jesus, the very first question that he asks Jesus in his trial is, Are you the king of the Jews? From there, Jesus is crowned with thorns, he's dressed in royal purple, and he's given a scepter. The soldiers pay him mock tribute as a king. The charge above his head reads that he is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. All throughout his gospel, Jesus foreshadows this climactic event of his gospel, that Jesus is assuming his throne when he goes to the cross with his opening declaration that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. But Jesus is not a king like other earthly kings. His kingdom is not one by the blood of his enemies, but it is secured and won by his own blood. The king is coronated by blood while his own subjects yelled, He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth laid aside his rightful authority on earth in order that he might govern all things in both heaven and on earth for your good. People loved by God, behold your king who is marked for death. 
But why did it have to be so? Why did it have to be this way? Why did the king have to die? It is because of your sin, yours and mine, that Jesus had to die. You see, in the beginning, we were not made to die. We were made in the image and likeness of the king of the universe. But our first parents rejected that image, choosing their own desires instead. And now we bear the mark of the man of dust, the man of death, our father Adam. We have turned away from God towards our own desires, towards our own will, away from the will of God. But out of his great mercy and his love for us, our king takes on our image and our likeness, even taking upon himself the mark of our death. Now we heard about the plot in our reading from Matthew's gospel, but this was always the plan. Even before the foundation of the world, he would bruise the head of the serpent, but his heel would in turn be bruised. Is he not the greater ram whom God provided at Moriah? Is he not the greater Joseph unjustly sold into slavery and accused of sin that he did not commit and then later exalted to the throne of Egypt? Is he not the greater Passover lamb whose blood marks the doorposts of Israel, but also marks the doorposts of our mouths? Is he not the one who is forsaken by the Father so that we would not be forsaken? Is he not the one who is crushed for our iniquities, whose stripes have brought us healing? So yes, the chief priests... And the elders of the people and Judas and Pontius Pilate and Peter with his denial and all the others that we will encounter this Lenten season as we journey again with Jesus through his passion to the cross and grave. All of those guys played their parts. But Jesus was marked for death long before the events in Jerusalem that week began to unfold. So dear saints, I bid you. Gaze at the cross and behold your king who has been marked for death. But as you do so, do not forget also to rejoice. For even as he bore the mark of your death, you now bear the mark of his death. In your baptism into Jesus, you are marked with his holy cross both upon your forehead and upon your heart. You are redeemed by Christ the crucified. And in bearing the mark of his death, you also then bear the mark of his unending life. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.